Turn with me over to the book of Isaiah. We are in a series, and I'm continuing from what I began last week, Christmas, called Joy is Here. Joy is here. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 6. It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, too. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation and you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 6, for unto us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Lord, help us as we study your word. Joy. The Advent celebration that we repeatedly do every Christmas season is not just to allow us the privilege to concentrate on a ceremony, but to amplify the Sundays that these candles represent in in church antiquity. Love, joy, peace. These things are things that need to be accentuated during the holidays. And today we're talking about joy. Joy is a wonderful benefit from God. It's not just a characteristic of emotion. It's not a manifestation of happiness. It is a gift from God that comes directly to us as a result of our born-again experience. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Paul contrasts that which should be done in the Spirit with that which shouldn't be done in the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are obvious, he says. Selfishness, enmity, strife, bitterness, anger, jealousy. He goes through all of that and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. He has nine of them there. And they are not nine fruits as in plural. They are nine fruit. As if you were to take an orange and see nine slices within it and take one out each time. That you can take of the fruit of the Spirit on a a regular basis and enjoy as much as you want because at the end of the passage he says this, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now there's a law against everything else we shouldn't do. There's a law against selfishness. There's a law against covetousness. There's a law against envy. There's a law against murder. There's a law against theft. But there's no law against these things. Why? Because you can have as much as you want. And whenever you run out of patience, take another bite of fruit. Are you listening to me? I think, I think Paul is trying to tap into what God intended for Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in this garden you want. As much as you want. Knock yourself out. One tree you can't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden. Do not touch, do do, do not eat of that, for in the day you eat of it, you will die. But everything else I have no law against. Wouldn't it be great 
If God told us you can eat whatever you want, Now, you, you've got, the, you've got the, the, the permission to eat what you want, but not the command. And if you eat what you want, I'm convinced you will have a much closer walk with Jesus. You're going to get to heaven in a hurry. But wouldn't it be great if he just told us by command, eat as much as you want, whatever you want. This is how fallen we are. We can't, or else we, we grow in ways that are unproductive and unhealthy, unhealthy. Adam didn't have these restrictions. Whatever he wanted, he could eat. Only one tree he couldn't take from, but everything else he could. I think Paul is tapping into that. You can have as much of the fruit of the Spirit as you want. You can have as much joy as you want because it has nothing to do with happiness. Happiness is based on happenstance, things that happen to you. And I'm not mad about happiness. I like it when good things happen to me. When, my, when, my, when there's an automatic smile on my face as a result of circumstances being in my favor, that's <laughs> a good day. It doesn't happen often. I'm always trying to figure out how to fix stuff. I'm running uphill all the time trying to repair that which is broken. That is not only my spiritual responsibility, I've taken it on as my job for the last 40. No complaint, it's just reality. 90% of the stuff in ministry is challenging, not happy. The fruit is so rewarding that it makes it worth it. But it is not happy. We're dealing with lives that are broken and messed up as a result of sin. We're traveling upstream constantly trying to figure out how to get the resources to be able to repair our world, not just the people in the church. How do we find facilities where we can help more people more often? How do we allow for more ministers to get out there? How do we get all the stuff necessary to change the world for God's will better and faster? These are things that wake me up in the night. If not wake me up, keep me up. No complaint, just reality. Happiness is not necessarily anything by which I judge my life going well. But joy, something different. It's a deposit from God that allows me to experience a sense of relief and overwhelming contentment as a result of him diving into my circumstances when they are not favorable. I got help. I've got somebody on my side who is always for me. So when things are bad, they're good. Though I'm going through a valley of a shadow of death, I fear no evil. For he is with me. If he wasn't with me, I'd have reason to fear. But he's with me. Joy can fill my soul when, when tears are running down my cheek. Joy is an important component to your progress. You need to access it on a regular basis and express it. It'll look like happiness even though you're not because it's hard to tell the difference to anybody else. This is what we require of our staff. We help them, we pastor them, we care for them, we, we counsel them, we, we mature them, we give them opportunity for growth. Our staff is phenomenal, your staff is phenomenal. But we require you come in that door, whatever problem you had outside, doesn't matter when you come in here. Yeah. Not to you. It matters to us, but not to you. Smile.
because these people need your service. You sacrifice whatever you feel on the inside in order to serve these people well with joy. They ought to be able to never tell you're going through anything. Now, you want help? Come in my office. Cry all day long. I'll support you. We'll figure out how to find God in the midst of it. But when you walk out of here, there are about 4,000 people who need a smile on your face. They don't feel like they, they shouldn't feel like they're a burden to you when they show up. That somehow they're adding to your difficulty. Mm, 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 mm. It's a joy to be able to serve them. Even when you've got a thousand pounds on the bar. Joy. Joy. And, 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 and th- 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 what I'm about to do here is for free. Um, there's a passage over in Thessalonians where Paul talks about his joy. And I'm going to make you turn there. It's not even in my notes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Paul says this, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which, you have, which we rejoice before our God on your account? Verse 10 is, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Interesting passage. Paul talking to the Thessalonians about life and is saying, you make us happy about what God has done in you. When we think about you, we get joyful because the Lord is moving in your life in significant ways. And if you look in in Acts chapter 17, the church at Thessalonica was not birthed in, in ease. It was a hard place to birth a church, lots of persecution. And Paul realizes that through which they went. And he's saying, you all are amazing. You bring me joy. But he's not with them right now. And so he has to write this to them. He's using the technology of his day in order to communicate truth. In absentia. Not being able to meet face to face. Hello everybody online. But he says, what can I do to express my joy in a tangible way and my appreciation for who you have become. How can I give back to you in a way that benefits you beyond the technology I'm using right now? Because I'm writing to you what I think about you, but it's not enough. So I think I need to come to you to meet you in person because the only way I can impart to you what's important is if we could do it face to face. Hello, everybody online. Online is really important. Notwithstanding all the medical things and concerns we have about health, I'm with you. I get it. I really do it. I am sensitive to all those issues. And I'm grateful for this medium that allows us to communicate to you in ways that benefit you. It is wonderful. And I'm glad you've tuned in. But there are some things you can't get from there. Paul says, I'm trying my best. And these letters are holy. These are the best writings in all of humanity for people. None better ever written. And he says, not enough. I can't impart to you what needs to be imparted. The joy that I feel on the inside about who you are and what you should be. I can't get it to you unless I'm face to face. I beg you, at some point, allow the Holy Spirit to give you what he wants to give you through us. By coming face to face and letting our joy about you be transferred in a way that imparts goodness that cannot be transferred except 
face to face. Here we have in the book of Isaiah a man who is prophesying probably nothing that he really understands. Sometimes God tells you stuff and you can fit it in your language to which you were born or that which you know, but it doesn't fit in your brain. It doesn't process orderly in your own soul, but you know he's speaking it. You don't know how it's supposed to work out, but you know he's saying it. And this is probably where Isaiah is. He's trying to communicate the the kind of joy that should come as a result of the difficulty through which people have been in the land of Zebulun. Now, remember last time we talked about chapter 8 kind of highlighting everything through which the land of Zebulun would go. Isaiah is a difficult book to read with respect to his understanding of what is prophecy and what he might be going through now. But we believe, when I say now, I mean during his time, we believe he was prophesying about what would happen in Zebulun at this point. Though later on in his... his, uh, writings it would have already happened and so we're looking at history being made and history coming up on and he's prophesying that difficulty is going to come from the kingdom of Assyria against the land of Zebulun Zebulun is in the north it's part of the northern kingdom there were two kingdoms that made up Israel the northern kingdom the southern kingdom southern kingdom called Judah northern kingdom called Israel didn't have even though they had a common lineage they didn't have identical worship Idolatry in the, in the north, for the most part, uh, excuse me, all the time. In the south, intermittent moments of worship proper and worship improper. But in the north, all the time, worship improper, not worshiping Jehovah. As a result, they experienced judgment. Assyria came, knocked them off, dispersed all the people groups to, to, to the known world. Just took them and said, you are no more a nation. We are scattering you to the four corners of the earth. That was Zebulun. That group of people no longer existed there, but God remembered that that was a part of his promise, meaning in the promised land. There were a remnant that remained, but 90 to 95% of the people were gone. But the Lord did not forget. And he said, I'm going to make this place a place where light comes from. I'm going to make this place a place from which I bring the promise for all of humanity. And joy and gladness will be there. Where gloom has been the ordinary, no more. We talked about that last week. Now I'm going to make joy something that is a part of their their future. They can expect it. And there's going to be an increase of this kind of joy. An increase, not only that is reflected internally, but they're going to have some reasons for joy outside of just how they feel. I'm going to increase the numbers I'm going to let their population increase. And I'm going to give them increased victory. Where they have experienced defeat historically, I'm going to give them victory. And all of this would come through the culmination, and this is why I jumped to verse 6, through the culmination of what it means to bring the Messiah into the earth. That they were not going to experience it apart from God's ultimate promise for humanity. And that Jesus, though he was born in Bethlehem, was going to be raised in Galilee. What a privilege! That God took the most ungodly version of his people and decided to place his son's home there. You wonder, wait a minute now, I know them. They are really whack. They've lived so long wrong, I can't believe that God is blessing them like he's blessing them. 
I've seen everything they've done. I've heard everything they've said. They were an absolute mess. And look at them now. How come I'm not that? Why do they seem to be, be, be blessed when more than me? God, <laughs> we're sin and bounds. Grace abounds all the more. more. Now, Paul answered the question you're thinking. Well, maybe I should have lived worse. No, 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 no. That's not the right response. The right response is this, that there is nobody outside of his grace. It doesn't matter what you've done with respect to his grace. It matters what you've done because now you've got to recover. Doesn't mean that his blood has to work any harder to try to get you right. Whatever it is, that power remains and it always overcomes whatever wrong you've done. Somebody say amen. amen. Whatever wrong you've done, that blood overcomes it. It doesn't have to ramp up. It doesn't need a super shot. It doesn't need a, 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 a booster. Nothing. It is powerful. But you got to recover. Memories, bad habits experiences, all that stuff, try to live better. Try to live better so you don't have to recover from a whole lot. He said, I'm sending my son to live there. And everybody in Jerusalem just couldn't believe that anything. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene in, in Judea and everybody was trying to figure out who this Messiah was and John had prophesied about him, Philip went to his buddy, Nathaniel, who would be, uh, actually, Bartholomew, who would later be named Nathaniel, who was one of the disciples, went to his buddy and said, come see this guy. Everybody's talking about him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. I can't explain it all, but he is the man. He's, he's the guy. And Nathaniel said, Jesus of what? Of what? Nazareth. Well, Nathaniel says this. He's a Bible student now. We know that later from what happens. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the way people thought of Nazareth. They forgot this passage, how God was about to bless them. And he said, I'm going to do this not independent of what I'm, I'm ultimately doing for humanity. He said, I'm going to give them increase in population, increase in numbers. And I want to talk on two levels of this. Oh, gosh, it is so late. I got to hurt two levels God wants to increase people that can be called his sons and daughters spiritual sons and daughters around the world he is going to give increase so that churches can grow and I realize that everything that the ecclesiologists and sociolo Christian sociologists say about the church is in decline I, I, I don't look at numbers to judge God's progress I don't I, I, I don't ignore them, but I also see what other people don't. He's moving in extraordinary ways in our day. Please do not let sociological step backs be those which give you an indication of whether God is in our world. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying from all the news this week. Do not. Do not. God is moving in marvelous ways. And is setting up the greatest opportunity for people to get saved ever. For the church to be better ever. He's setting it up. You just need to see differently. Increase in the number of people who are going to love him is happening. Secondly, and, 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 and those of you who 
Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and go for it because I don't have time to explain everything. There's, there's an increase in population with respect to having babies in a marriage. In a marriage. Now, if you have children outside of marriage, I'm happy for you and your kids. To have kids is a wonderful thing. However they come on the planet, I'm happy about them. But God's prescribed way of having children is husband, wife, baby. That's his prescription. If you go outside of that prescription, boyfriend, girlfriend, baby, then you're going to have issues you got to overcome. Not mad about your baby. Just know we got to help you more than we normally would have. You need more help than you normally would have. And so God's got a good idea about what family ought to look like. And, and, and I want you to, to, to really hear this. Adam and Eve blow it. And God in, immediately brings judgment. <laughs> as soon as he shows up, what happened? And they start saying, well, what, 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 what happened was, they blame one another, and God says, oh, you got to deal with this, Eve. You got to deal with this, Adam. Serpent, you got to deal with this. Judgment coming to you. The blessing before the, 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 the fall was that they could be fruitful and multiply. That was the blessing before the fall now. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is your, this is your blessing. And he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply after he created them. In the midst of the judgment, he did not withdraw the blessing. He could have. He could have. Because he knew this. All this is going to do is produce more problems for me. Just like you say. <laughs> you have these beautiful little bundles of joy. They come into your life, they're gorgeous, but you realize. Every day for the rest of my life, I've increased my problems. <laughs> I had problems with me. I had problems with him. But now I got more problems. I'm trying to let you, I'm trying to let you feel what God feels. But did that stop you? Why did you produce this human being? Because love compelled God doesn't look at you as a problem. He looks at you as an object of his love. And I don't think anything about increasing the population, increasing numbers of people in this passage, I don't think anything about that is disconnected from and unto us a child will be born. I'm going to increase it until we get all the way to him. Because the more people we have, even though it's difficult to try to manage all the problems they got, the possibility of the world being better is greater. Parents, excuse me, couples come to me and say, we're, we're not going to have any children because we just think this world is too messed up to bring people into. I said, I'm, you're right, it's messed up. It's a bad place. It's horrible. But did you ever think they might, if you had them, be a part of the solution? If God had that thought, we never would have gotten to Jesus. We wouldn't have had Peter, James, and John. We wouldn't have had Isaiah, all the prophets. 
I want to encourage you that if you are in the position to have children the most prescribed way, have as many as the Lord allows. And I know you're, you're hearing, hearing this from a guy who had seven. And so you're thinking, have that? No, 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 yes, no, 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 no. But you, as parents, are the best chance for the world to be better. You're the best chance to produce godly offspring, to do something in the next 20, 30, 40. (laughs) Sometimes it takes a long time to raise them. (laughs) Sometimes it takes a while however long it takes to make a really good, productive human being on the planet. You're the best hope for the world. And if you're fearful, if you're overly concerned, if you don't know what you're doing, you're a great candidate because that's what every parent is. And God helps you. Secondly, he's going to give them increase in victory. That they just weren't going to be, they weren't going to be the, 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 the people that had large numbers. Or you could judge their success by the amount of folks that followed a particular person or individual. But God was going to give them unqualified victory when they pressed forward that their enemies were not going to be able to stand before them it did not mean that they would not experience some challenges or maybe lose a battle but it did mean that in the end they would win victory is supposed to be ours and the first victory you need to secure is that which is over your own soul We're not talking about victory over human beings here. Though the the context in this passage happens to deal with people who would come and try to take over the land again. And he says, your oppressors, I will deal with. If you look at verses 4 and 5, I'll deal with them and you will have victory that is unquestioned. But we we don't fight people. We have to battle against our own souls and against principalities and powers that rule in the dark places. And as a result of the victory that we experience in our own souls, leveraging the promises of God, fighting against gloom and despair that we talked about last week and depression and discouragement, believing that the light of God is coming to our lives along with his glory to overcome all of the cloudiness that pervades in our life. And now beginning to understand something about joy. That when we experience what it looks like to to, to naturally see things not be in the order that allow us to be happy about our circumstances, we can have the kind of joy that knows God is going to fix what I see. And what I don't see is more real than what I do see. His promises are true. And though my 15-year-old may not be what I see see, see him needing to be, I know my God is on the case. So though he's making me cry, I can find joy in the promise in the end. You fight like that in your soul with the words of promise that are found in Scripture. You do not just say, oh God, fix it. 
better than not praying. But it's not the fullness of what it means to understand his will and how you begin to enforce it in your life. I'm not talking about name it and claim it. I'm not talking about grab it and blab it. No, I'm talking about making sure that you understand his promises for you. That this is what he has said. And if you hold on to it, that will help you. Lastly, the joy of the Lord in the midst of your difficulty is your strength. That's the sound over in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The people of Israel were trying to figure out how in the world do we, do we move forward knowing what we know about what the temple should have been, what the city should have been. And the temple at that time was being dedicated. It was being reconstructed as best as possible with the resources they had and did not have. It was not a happy time, though the people had come out of bondage now and were back in the promised land, having been relieved from Babylon. They were trying to figure out how do we get back to what we were. And they looked at the temple and all there was at that point was an altar. There was no place of worship. It had still been destroyed. And, and, and they were looking and saying, this is not what we used to have. This is not what my parents talked about. This isn't what my grandparents. And they began to cry. Weep. In fact, the sound of the weeping was so great that you couldn't hear anything else in the, in the area of the sanctuary. And, and Nehemiah said this, stop it, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, many have interpreted that somehow the joy that God gives you is the strength you should have. It's kind of the conduit that gets you to the strength that you should have. Could be, but I've never found that pathway. Never found the pathway from joy to strength. Doesn't mean it's not there. I just haven't found it yet. I think what, what Nehemiah was saying is this. Recognize the joy that God has over you right now and where you come from and what he wants to do. When you re- recognize that he is for you and he is joyful over where you are, that provides you strength to get up every day to say, oh, he's not judging me for yesterday. Whatever I'm encountering today has nothing to do with how he feels about me. I can press through this moment because he's happy with me. The joy that God has over you should be your strength. You don't let yesterday's failures begin to now define your today. You allow the blood of Christ and all the things that he has with respect to the promises for your life to be that which lets you go on every day understanding how he feels about you. Your thoughts are not most important unless they are his. You hear me? Done. Father in heaven, bless these people. Pour out your grace on them. Thank you for your goodness and power. 